Good evening. Goodbye Forever, Volume 2 by Nakchang Rinpoche. Chapter 4, Part 2. You're a hoot, Rebecca laughed. I think we're going to have fun together. I must say that I was a bit, not exactly anxious, but cautious about how it would work out. But it seems that if we go on the way we've started, it'll all be great fun. And so we talked till it was time to go shopping for the evening meal. The ladies decided they'd cook the first meal together to welcome me to the house. They ascertained whether I could cook and were pleased to hear that I enjoyed cooking and that I was reasonably proficient with the culinary art. I retired to my room and lay back on the bed. I'd bought a rather fine woven Moroccan bedspread that was almost thick enough to be a carpet. It was full of vivid reds, yellows and blues and turned the bed into some kind of settee if I arranged a few large floor cushions up against the wall. The bed was a simple baseboard and mattress which was ideal for the room. It could easily double as a living room and felt like some kind of palace. I'd survived the introduction and the ladies seemed both friendly and lively. It occurred to me that they'd had as much trepidation as I'd had in respect of our first meeting. I knew that Det had assured them that I was house trained and lacking in whatever the major obnoxious male proclivities might be. This had been assured on the basis of my bedsit in St Andrews having been constantly as immaculate as a bedsit could be. Male bedsits, as I knew only too well, often stank of fetid underwear and rank socks. They were congested with unwashed crockery and bore little trace of civilization. I'd had the misfortune to enter such a few pits of hell and had almost succumbed to the fumes. So this was where I would live for the next three years. What a delight. I picked up a book that was on the bookshelf in the drawing room, Ulysses. I'd read it when I was at school and wanted to find a certain passage I remembered. The void awaits surely all them that weave the wind. What a phrase. I could base a piece of poetry on that line. I jotted it down in my poetry notebook. Poets often quoted each other and it was too good a line to pass by. My sense of poetic grammar, however, would have had to have changed the line somewhat. Maybe the void awaits surely, comma, or those who weave the wind. Or the void surely awaits whosoever weaves the wind. Or I could play with the idea of the void being a waiter in a deserted restaurant. Voidness waits on those who weave the wind. Juggling ideas of the Marie Celeste with a bam marie. I read on. A stately plump fellow called Buck Mulligan is found wandering about in his dressing gown. 
He's shaving and mocking the Roman Catholic Mass by using his shaving bowl as a chalice. He calls down to Stephen Daedalus, Ah, the fellow from Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, I mused. I'd studied that book for my English A-level at Virginia Water School. I read on. Stephen Daedalus listens to Mulligan's mock of the Catholic Mass and Mulligan notes the absurdity of Daedalus's surname. Daedalus built the labyrinth and then the wax wings which allow him and his son Icarus to escape from Crete. He warns Icarus not to fly too close to the sun or to the sea, but Icarus gets carried away with himself and flies too close to the sun. His wax wings melt and he falls into the sea and drowns. This stuff was so incredibly rich and vivid. I read on and eventually had to laugh. Buck Mulligan sat down to unlace his boots. An elderly man shot up near the spur of rock, a, blaze, a blowing red face. He scrambled up by the stones, water glistening on his pate and on its garland of grey hair, water rilling over his chest and paunch and spilling jets out of his black, sagging loincloth. Buck Mulligan made way for him to scramble past and... Glancing at Haynes and Stephen, crossed himself piously with his thumbnail at brow and lips and breastbone. Seymour's back in town, the young man said, grasping again his spur of rock. Chucked medicine and going in for the army. Some strange old man erupts out of nothing, evidently from the sea, scrambles by without saying a word and the conversation continues as if nothing had happened. This stuff was Python-esque. I loved it. A picture formed itself in my mind of the rag-clad ancient who appears at the start of each episode. After taking some while to get close enough to speak, he says, It's. Then they cut to Monty Python's Flying Circus. Was there influence? Probably not, but it was intriguing to find this parallel. Time to sit. It took a while to settle into a state undisturbed by thought, which was unusual. The decision not to let that concern me made itself without my having to make any conscious choice or consideration. The room was new to me and so the ambience was empty of history, empty of plans. I only recognised it later when recalling the atmosphere of the room, but the colour had intensified as I sat. After some moments of this intensification, I found myself in the presence of Kyungchen Arolingma. I had no idea how long the vision lasted or when it ceased. I suddenly found myself feeling as if I'd been motionless and comfortable in having been motionless for an unqualifiable period.
As was sometimes the case, I found that there was something I knew, a sense of knowingness without subject. This room was going to be my home for a few years. The three ladies would become extremely good friends, but I knew nothing about debt. I'd had no sense of her being involved in my life at all. It was not easy at first to recollect her face, whereas the faces of Penelope, Rebecca and Merrill seemed as clear as if I had known them for years. What was there to make to such an impression? Nothing, or nothing that I could explore with a quotidian rationale. I heard the front door open and slam closed in the wind. A burst of laughter, probably in reaction to the loudness of the door slamming. My name being called. That was probably just as well. I would otherwise have spent useless time pondering something that would not avail itself to pondering. Nothing ever did avail itself to pondering, and yet I would persist in the futile pursuit. If the sense of the vision revealed itself, it would do so without my conceptual meanderings being involved. I descended the stairs to greet the ladies. They were in the kitchen when I reached the ground floor, depositing shopping bags. They'd evidentially gone to town when they went to town, and I was amazed to see the array of delights they'd procured. Tea? I asked, and they nodded appreciatively. Go sit down and I'll be through with the teapot directly. Penelope threw herself down in one of the large armchairs. Blimey, she groaned, kicking off her shoes. My feet are killing me. No sooner were the words out of her mouth than Rebecca pointed a finger at her in mock accusatory indignation. And did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountains green? No, Penelope laughed in mock consternation. That's the third time this week. Rebecca and Merrill were cackling almost violently with glee and I stood there watching them in confusion. Once they'd calmed down, I grinned at them and made my usual curl of the hand to suggest an explanation might be welcome. Rebecca just laid a William on Penelope, Merrill explained. You see, well, actually, no, you won't see at all because you've no idea what I'm talking about. True enough, I smiled. So what does laying a William mean? Nothing like laying a Henry, I trust. Henry? Rebecca inquired. Cockney rhyming slang. Henry as in Henry III. Or Richard as in Richard III. Merrill obviously had no idea what I was talking about, so I proceeded. With Cockney rhyming slang, you leave off the rhyming word 
and it's the rhyming word which gives the clue as to the other word which rhymes with it. It's a code language. It's designed to be incomprehensible if you're not a Cockney. Merrill still had no idea what I was talking about, so I concluded, well, third would have to be described as having faecal implications. Oh, right, turd, I see. Oh, that's very funny. I never did get it with Cockney rhyming slang. So you're from London then? No, but where I went to school was close enough to London that stray Cockneyisms drifted. Words like butchers, which is butcher's hook for look, as in take a butcher's at this, me old China. China being China plate for mate. Then there's plates, which is plates of meat and means feet. A howl of laughter went up and Merrill levelled her finger at me in, in an accusatory manner. And did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountains green? I was naturally baffled. Sorry about this, Vic, Penelope laughed. It's silly, really, but we have this game that's been going on since, well, for years. I think it started when we were in the third year at school, Merrill offered. Maybe earlier, I couldn't say. None of us really remember how it started, Penelope mused. But I suppose you know Jerusalem. William Blake, yes. I've always found Jerusalem quite moving. In fact, it's the only hymn I ever liked. Even though it's not really a hymn, we used to sing it from time to time in the school assemblies. Right, Penelope continued. So we have this silly thing where we avoid using the plural of foot. And if any of us ever make the hideous error of pluralising foot, then someone can say, and did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountains green? And that's called laying a William. William Blake, you see. So if we absolutely have to pluralise foot, we call them Blakes. The three ladies looked at me apprehensively as if awaiting sardonic sneer. After a moment, I laughed. Blake's, eh? Now that's extremely funny. I love the surrealism of it. Can I join in? You don't think it's stupid? Rebecca asked. Not at all. I think it's completely loony. I love that kind of thing. And it greatly puts me in mind of Lord Admiral Nelson. Pardon? queried Merrill. Why Nelson? Well, I replied, he had a ship called the Victory, didn't he? And I was just wondering whether he ever renamed his ship when he lost a battle. What? Merrill laughed. 
the defeat. And there I had her. And did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountains green? Oh, terrible, 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 Meryl shrieked and flopped back in her chair, crying with laughter. That's too funny, Vic. That's paid you back for laying a William on me, Rebecca. We're going to have to watch this one. He's a card. It was a little unfair, I ventured. It was a homonym after all. Homonyms are allowed, Penelope smiled, or laying a William would be a little limited. And of course, you hadn't actually agreed to my joining in. I think we had, Vic. Merrill laid a William on you and you couldn't get more of an invitation than that, grinned Penelope. I think you're one of the girls now. Most happy to be accepted as such, I smiled. I think I'll take the weight off my Blakes now I've made the tea, but do you mind terribly if I don't join you? I'm not much of a tea drinker, you see. Coffee's my preferred hot beverage, and I only drink that in the morning. The rest of the time I drink fruit juice. That was fine with the girls, and so I brought through a pint of apple juice, half and half with sparkling water. So this was the world, the world of the West, that I was supposed to plumb. That is what Dujam Rinpoche had advised. I was supposed to feel at home here, and that's what I'd done. I felt completely at home, but I was supposed to be a Nakpa as well. Well, it wasn't that I wasn't, but I wasn't sure that I was. I knew it whilst I practised. I'd wind my Nakpa shawl around my shoulders and either sit silently or chant liturgy. That, however, was little different to being in the Himalayas. Where was the Nakpa, however, when shopping in Clifton? When eating lunch in the art school canteen? Or when being one of the girls in Hotwells? There was something missing, but I could not name it. I thought about it. I tried to penetrate the conundrum, enigma, paradox or oxymoron. Maybe there was nothing missing. If what was missing was so intangible that I couldn't identify it, maybe the situation was perfect as it was. Be that as it may, I could not shake the vague idea that I'd lost what I was in Nepal. That idea seemed to haunt me. The only thing that dissolved that mind state was Vajrayana practice. That was not entirely due to the nature of the practice, but because that was how Nakpas would occupy their time. When I was practicing, I knew who I was, but viscerally rather than conceptually. You must what is mind asking, 
Dujan Rinpoche had commented when I was with him in Nepal. Unless he asked me to do otherwise, I always wrote down what the translator said, word for word. This was for two reasons. The first reason was that trying to convert Tibetan syntax into fluent English whilst it was being spoken seemed to get in the way of trying to understand. Half my mind would be on making grammatical sense of what I was hearing. The other reason was that I simply enjoyed hearing Tibetan syntax because it took me back to being with Dujum Rinpoche. Sometimes he would ask me to convert a passage of writing into my own English in order that it could be translated back to him. He did this in order to check my understanding. I ended up, however, valuing both versions of what he had said equally, both the Tibetan syntax version and my own reconstructions seemed advantageous to practice. Dujan Rinpoche asked me where the identity was located that attaches to itself. What was it that identifies other as being other? This, mind, but where mind finding? Mind must embody finding. When mind not there finding, they're only corpse finding. If mind is in body, where in body? What size? What shape? What colour? Pain and pleasure all over body feeling, so mind and body interrelated. Mind and body indivisible seeming, but when dying, where mind going? I was to question how mind entered or vacated body and whence. When examining mind, I would discover a web of unquestioned notions. Dujum Rinpoche had said that we cling to phenomena as though they were permanent. That was the style of human derangement. The artificial mental self-identity we create enslaves us. When arriving at a genuine comprehension of mind, one sees that present thoughts are like waves on water or clouds in the sky. They arise, they dissolve. When no empty mind seeing, then mind only thoughts showing. It was all there in my notes and I read sections of these notes every day. Empty mind. From this, thoughts coming, but thoughts also empty. Mind itself, kawa fabricating. Then mind's own nature not recognising, and element essences never seeing. Where this knowing, then under control bringing and mastering. In order to do this, Dujum Rinpoche said that one must keep one's body 
in equanimous, equanimous stasis in order that the spatial nerves would be in natural alignment and the spatial winds unobstructed. If the spatial winds were unobstructed, then mind would abide in its natural dimension where the spatial essences manifest as primal creativity. Dujan Rimshe's practice instruction often, often involved me in a great deal of study to unpack what he had said, and I was often entirely out of my depth. I tried asking a number of English-speaking lamas if they could either elaborate or simplify what Dujan Rinpoche had taught, but no one felt able to tackle the subject. It therefore took a long time to understand that he had been describing the perceptual correlate of particle physics. Namtogs into appearance flashing, like lightning or like waves on ocean swelling. There is constant movement. We must this arising immediately recognising. If failing, then movement unnoticed below surface continuing. This is useless. If dark, thoughtless blankness experiencing, immediately you must be clearing, over and over clearing. Otherwise, meditation will be sinking. If many namtogs arising, not discouraged becoming, not meditation failure thinking, this sign that awareness having, if Namtogs unnoticed, this failure. Noticing, not failure thinking. Namtogs not suppressing or eliminating. Whatever happening, always without hoping or fearing. No uncertainty or anticipation coming. This essential instruction in heart keeping, then everything fine coming. Whenever I read these words, I felt confident. I always kept Dujum Rinpoche's instruction in my heart. It was impossible to do otherwise, because their value was beyond question. When I read the words, he was always there with me, and I never felt there would ever be any problem with anything. There would certainly be difficulties and my practice might not evolve as swiftly as could be wished, but there would be no disjunction or falling away from the primary intention to be what Kyabje Dujam Rimshe intimated I could be.